you know, everybody knows. I'm sure half the people on your on your podcast have said that there may be a lot going on, but it's a lot of the same story. You know, we we really are. We're not totally looking to reinvent the wheel here. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital news innovation. Today we're Skyping. I've got Amber Healy, one of our producers with us from Buffalo. Hey, Amber. Hey, Mike. And we've got another former guest on the podcast, Chris Ferrone from Boston. And I actually didn't mean to say Boston like that, but it came out that way. Uh, how's it going, Chris? It's going well. And, you know, that that almost since you weren't trying, it sounded more natural than when people, you know, f- did, you know, try to try to do it from elsewhere. So I think it, I think it, it works. OK, good. I wonder about, you know, I was thinking about that before we started our call that, you know, am I going to do some stupid Boston accent? And I'm like, <laughs> is that kind of insulting? Because, you know, do you, do you have somebody who comes from Georgia and you start, you know, talking like them? And isn't that kind of insulting? So anyway, I'll, I'll try to refrain from that any further. Um, but anyway, the last time we spoke, you were involved in this crazy, elaborate freelance story about lawlessness, corruption, and militarized evictions in the Pacific Northwest. So catch us up on that project, Oregon Tale. Yeah, it was Oregon Tale. And, you know, I had, I had spoken with a couple of uh, outlets that I had been working with at the time, some bigger ones, about, you know, mostly based out of New York, about doing that for uh, potentially a long form story. But really, it turned into something bigger. So, you know, one the reason I think we had a cool conversation is because I had gone about it on my own. We crowdsourced the money. We uh, did it on Medium. It's almost like a book. People could still read it. It's medium.com slash Oregon dash tail. And uh, it was really just, it was journalism. It was every kind of journalism I'd ever done. Narrative, investigative. We were on the scene, flew out to Oregon twice with a team that we that we hired. And that was, it was really, you know, independent, muckraking and fun stuff. And as a result, you know, the, the story ended up getting covered in the local press. Uh, which had been ignoring the story. And basically the story was that a big part of it was that they're doing militarized evictions in places where there aren't even police available to protect people. They literally don't have 24-7, 365 police service as a result of uh, diminished municipal revenues. So, you know, really, I'd love, I'd love to say there were big changes. There weren't. You know, some of the cases that we looked at, people did have some relief in the court system criminally, but they're still losing their homes. I had hoped that a couple months ago when the Ammon Bundy fiasco broke out in Oregon, that some of the message about the treatment of the you know federal lands and such in that in that part of the United States would get some more attention. But of course, you know, since there was, you know, some elements of racism and some, you know, more superficial and uh, sensational elements of that story. I unfortunately don't think that outside of some good coverage by NPR and a few others, I really don't think the word about how much people are really suffering in that part of America uh, got out as a result of, you know, that standoff story. So did you accomplish what you set out to do? You know, you said that this was something that was, you know, a freelance project, almost a passion project that you did. I mean, yeah, we, first of all, you know, and it was one of the reasons that we ended up doing this independently was that I knew one of the families that was being evicted. And they're actually still, I believe, uh, last I heard a little more than a month ago on the property. It's still contested and, you know, definitely changed the ele- uh, elements in that fight. As far as like really bringing that issue to a head, you know, hey, I'll tell you, the story still get a lot of traffic. I still get a lot of uh, coverage because. You know, it's one of those things where when you're writing about something that's in a total media desert, 
there are a lot of people who are suffering from these kinds of things, from these kind of militarized evictions, from you know basically uh, losses of tax revenues in their areas that have resulted in diminished services. But they're not talking to each other because you know the media is that's that's where the communication would have been. Sure, there's other forums on the internet and stuff, but so when my story comes out, you know there's still people who look around and they're looking online. Oh my God, here's somebody who did a whole series on this problem. So you know. If anything, no, I didn't accomplish everything I set out to. I'd love to uh, save my friend's parents' home. I do believe that the the series changed the nature of the criminal charges against them. Some were dropped, but I don't even want to overstate that because they still, unfortunately, kind of have to live with the government's foot on their neck. You know, if anything, and also, by the way, the stories had a huge, you know, I say that nothing, you know, good was accomplished through the Amon Bundy standoff, but my articles did have kind of a, a... a resurgence in traffic, and I, I hope that the people who went who went there saw that this really is a, a unique part of America where there really isn't the tra- this, especially in the kind of polarized political spectrum that we have now. That's not what it's like there. Things are just more complicated, and they're not just government hating rednecks. That's a cliche, and I, I hope that you know the tens of thousands of people who have who have read the series. I hope that at least that you know that helps them understand that. Uh, that complex situation that's happening in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, give them a little more context uh, at the biggest story that's going on there. And also, I just want to say one more thing about it. My biggest, my biggest, you you told me before the call that I could brag all I wanted. My favorite (laughs) thing about the the best compliment ever, and and I've had a few of them, and we put them on the right to power, that's my uh, personal imprint on on the Facebook page, are some of the letters I've gotten from readers who are from that area and who have said that the way I portrayed it, the way my team portrayed it is, you know, the, the, the best they've, they'd seen. And, you know, that kind of compliment, especially I'm, a, I'm from Queens and I've lived in Boston for, you know, 14 years. So to, to have that kind of compliment paid about and, you know, that's really what we set out to do. And that's why we you know went out there for weeks at a time and interviewed hundreds of people because we really wanted the flavor. It's such a unique place. And if there's anybody listening who's who's anywhere near that neck of the woods, which would be like uh, right on the border of California and Southern Oregon, you know, you got to go there. It's truly an unbelievable place. Yeah. And we'll have a link to that story with this, this podcast. And I encourage people to, you know, listen to that podcast uh, and then follow the link to the Oregon tale. It it is a pretty fascinating uh, piece of reportage that you did there. And I'm glad that we had a chance to sort of talk about it and follow up on it at this point. But you know that's not what you're in here for today. You've actually been busy with a with a, a newer project at the uh, Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism. I, I would question if any journalism is profitable anymore, but that's that's a different podcast. So <laughs> tell us about this new project. You know, it sounds it sounds stuffy, but it really you know I have I have B I N J. You know, we call it binge, and I have it tattooed on my knuckles. So <laughs> we try to keep it a little bit edgy too. You know, uh, you know. Out on the East Coast, uh, in Boston, where I've been reporting for more than a decade, it's we don't really have the same, we don't have the amount of nonprofit journalism as much going on as there is in, say, a place like California. In California, there are a, a lot more models, from what I've seen, of you know p- nonprofits covering local community news, really kind of picking up that torch, where picking up the ball, where it was you know dropped by a lot of you know traditional news operations over the years. So I kind of found out about this thing. And I'm also the editor, I have to say, of Dig Boston. So Dig Boston is the uh, alternative weekly in Boston. It's the only one remaining. 
I used to work at the Boston Phoenix, which, you know, was kind of like the, uh, you know, legendary uh, Boston alternative. It had been around since 1966, and several Pulitzer Prize winners came through that paper. Countless entertainment reporters from, you know, Owen Gleiberman to David Denby came up through the Phoenix. It was really kind of this breeding ground, and also for long-form writers. You know, when the Phoenix went out of business in 2013, they were still doing you know, four or five long form features a week. Wow. So four, four or five, 1200 to 5,000 word features. And some of mine were up to 10,000. And, you know, it's not just about the length, but about that, you know, that really was the incubator. That's where people in this region, you know, you came up and, and went, you know, first through freelancing, then maybe through a staff position. And then, you know, half the, and, um, you know, I don't know exact numbers, but really I'm telling you dozens of people at the Boston Globe, for example, including uh, uh, at least one person that I know off the top of my head on the Spotlight team who was portrayed in the mo uh, recent movie, came up through the Boston Phoenix. And most importantly, I can't forget this opportunity to say this, the Boston Phoenix broke the pre-sexual abuse scandal. Mm -hmm. uh, before the Globe ever wrote one word, Kristen Lombardi, who's now, uh, who was recently a Pulitzer Prize nominee, she's, I believe, the Center for Public Integrity, but I could be wrong about that. She wrote eight stories about the pre-sexual abuse scandal before the uh, the Globe wrote any of it. And I don't say that as a bitter alternative news guy. I say it, and this is all, all uh, relevant here, is because we have to remember that a lot of those, you know, a lot of stories, a lot of the important stories that end up getting covered by the Times or 60 Minutes started in grassroots, community, local, alternative newsrooms. And to when I was seeing something, that erode. In Boston, and, you know, I'm, I'm the editor of a, a newspaper of, the, of Dig Boston, and we only have, you know, three editorial employees. You know, that's, uh, we're sustaining, but that's it. As far as these long-form features, you know, we do have a feature well, but we only have the, the resources at, at the Dig to do, you know, one, maybe two, you know, deeper pieces every month. So I started looking at these other nonprofit models in California, but also elsewhere, including, you know, uh, the Nation, for example, the way the Nation, you know, there's the Nation, then there's the, uh, you know, the Nation Institute, mm -hmm. and you know, which funds a lot of the uh, the deeper reporting in the Nation. Well, I just, you know, I had never really realized. I, you know, I had my, I had my head down. I was been a reporter my whole career, running around, not really thinking about the funding. You know, until I started doing things like the Oregon Project, and until I started seeing other possibilities. And then when I, you know, kind of saw all this, you know, nonprofit activity. Uh, particularly a place like the San Francisco Public Press, which is doing fantastic stuff and has been for years, I said, you know, maybe we could do something like this in Boston. So my idea was just a little, uh, uh, I'm sure we'll get to this, but my idea was just a little different. You know, there's a lot of other nonprofit journalism incubators, but a lot of them, you know, they, they're kind of like university-based. They don't work with freelancers. And then they distribute through, you know, more commercial channels or, you know, NPR and and uh, uh, outlets like that, and that's fine. But we kind of have a totally different model. I said, you know what? I we want to keep some of this alternative press alive in uh, uh, in Greater Boston, and uh, we're going to do it by keeping. You know, say there's that uh, person who you know, like many of us have been. You know, you 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 want to do journalism, so you know you sustain your income. You know, maybe you work at a restaurant, you have a retail job, but you want to do more serious reporting on the side. You know, we're here at this juncture as an incubator to kind of help sustain stuff like that. Cool. Cool. You, you talked about a lot of things, and I'm sure there are some that sort of spark nods from uh, from Amber about 
Definitely. Uh, 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 when you come from community journalism, you know that your hard work, it's being seen by somebody, but you don't always know who. And if it ends up in, say, for example, the pages of the Washington Post six months after you've written it, there's a gratification there, but there's also a frustration. It's, it's hard to let that go, which I know is what Mike's getting at. Well, but the, you see, yeah, the, and, the other yeah, side, yeah. side about it is, sorry to interrupt you, the, the other side of that is is that, you know, if you if you really care about the story, then you want more people to know about it. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, so our whole thing, that's it. That's it. Exactly. You know, I'm not complaining. It's not a complaint. I, the whole idea is that, you know, uh, in Boston, you know, which is still a pretty rich media landscape, you know, we have. It's more than two dozen community newspapers, including ethnic papers, around. And my, our idea with Binge is that we're not going to be our own outlet. You know, we have no pride. It's, you know, we have a lot of, you know, I, I don't want that to come off wrong. We, we're not trying to take credit for everything. So what we are doing, the first thing before we, you know, wrote or reported a word was my original partner, John Loftus, and I went around and we met with every editor who would meet with us, every publisher, every reporter. You know, a lot of a lot of Narragansett uh, tall boy beers. Mm-hmm. That's what we drink around here. And, uh, you know, and we talked and we told them. So we you know, basically said, we want to help you out. We want to help these outlets. What are your wish lists? What are stories that you can't afford to do? What are stories that you want to do? You know, how can we help you? And, you know, also we started talking about the stories that we were interested in developing. And how can they play a role? You know, how can we do more than just syndication? If we do one story, how can we give? sidebar to this paper that's you know relevant to that community we've so far done i don't want to get ahead of the ball but we've done stories that are translated into spanish in el planeta our uh the region's biggest spanish-speaking newspaper so that was kind of our thing it's like you know we want to be able to you know help with resources and network a lot of these independent community outlets so their voices can be amplified to the point where a globe or you know one of our big television stations We'll hear it. We'll pick up a pick up on a story, or be forced to sometimes. That's a great idea. I mean, it sort of it adds another layer layer to the idea of what community journalism means. It's not just one outlet working on its own. This is what we're doing, and everyone else should either follow in our footsteps or pick up our pieces. But really, let's work together to get the information out there that people need that they might not be looking at that um, could be an, uh, an underground issue or or sort of something that isn't getting the attention that maybe it deserves and really broadcasting that to a bigger to a bigger audience. It's a great idea. A lot of these reporters are the same people. My problem with, uh, uh, you know, we're talking to a ton of funders and, and we're doing well. Uh, we, we've raised $75,000 so far in our first uh, about 10 or 11 months. And about half of that from foundations, some from the Logan Foundation and some from uh, Craig Connects and Craig Newmark. And the rest just by having parties and personal donations, selling T-shirts. And what I'm trying to tell people is that, trust me, and I'm sure the two of you also, I would love to give every journalist I know a $65,000 a year job and a beat. I wish. I wish I I could do it, you know? But I've seen too many startups crash and burn with these, you know, huge budgets. You know, they spend $50,000 on a website, fly a couple, you know, J school grads in to a place they've never lived and, and burn right through it. Our message is that, yes, as much as anybody, I understand that good, compelling, investigative, long-form journalism and multimedia journalism takes time and resources and money. I get it. But I think I have to explain to people, you know, particularly if they, they only understand the realm of maybe being a New York Times reporter or something and making, you know, six figures, that let's talk reasonable here. You know, we've produced features here. We produced... 
a two-part series on the history of disparity in liquor licensing laws in Boston. And yeah, it cost a couple thousand dollars, but not 50, you know, not $50,000. You know, for, you know, we really are a grassroots incubator. We're really trying to spread it around. We, we've contracted already with more than 40 freelancers, video people, photographers. This isn't just writers. So in doing that, we have built a really awesome community and we've had a ton of events. You know, everybody's using the, the word engagement now and that's cool, but that's just what we do. We really get out there. About half of our features so far have been tied to community events. So, you know, uh, discussions about the stories, that liquor license story, we had a big discussion over, over beers at a, at a place in Roxbury, a neighborhood that has historically not had even half a dozen liquor licenses. The point here is, I guess, we just took the wheels off and we said, if we, we got to experiment, we got to have fun. And we have to do it on a shoestring budget. And uh, so far, it's uh, so far so good. So are you sort of approaching it from the story point of view that you identify a story or you, you identify a journalist who, who wants to do a particular story and then you go out and look for funding? No, you know what? It's, it's interesting. I'm glad you asked. You know, that's a huge issue ethically right now in journalism. A lot of people are talking about it. It's a great conversation. And uh, I'm not against, although maybe some my partner, uh, my other partner, Jason Premis or some of our uh, writers may disagree with me on this, but I'm, I'm personally not against raising money for particular coverage, but we are not doing that yet. Okay. So, so uh, we, our money is, comes into a big pot and we, we use it however we wish. You know, and I do, of course, understand that could get into murky territory if you're not doing that. But so far, yeah, the money comes in. The grant we had from Craig Newmark was actually to look at kind of ethics in nonprofit journalism. And we're, we're actually, it looks like we're, we're teaming up at UMass Boston to do an, an ethics institute where we're teaching the community and teaching civic journalists, teaching them about a lot of these issues that we're talking about. So when you, when you go out and you look for money, you're really sort of selling who you are and what your message is and the types of stories you want to do. You're not necessarily identifying particular ones. Right. And, you know, it's not that it's an easy sell, that it's easy to get money, but people definitely understand when, you know, all we have to say is, you know, look at how many outlets there used to be. And we do arts journalism too. You know, this isn't, we're not just some, you know, hardcore, uh, muckraking investigative outfit. We do in critical arts coverage because with the erosion of community media, alternative and independent media, it's really limited in scope of what we get. You know, everybody knows, I'm sure half the people on your on your podcast have said that there may be a lot going on, but it's a lot of the same story. You know, we we really are. We're not totally looking to reinvent the wheel here. One of the very simple things that we would love to do this year is we've been kind of, you know, asking our, you know, partners and community papers, what's, what are things that are interesting? And half of them have said, nobody covers the school board. You know, there's not one uh, from any, from the Globe, the Boston Herald, the big papers, to television, to the community outlets. There's not one journalist in Boston who covers the school board. So, you know, there are some of these things that it's really, uh, for us, it's a lot about listening. But as far as, you know, how the stories come together, some of them are pitched, we try to really make it so that everything is project based so things don't get murky. I know it sounds like we're all over the place, but really we have a uh, and anybody check out a bingeonline.org. We have, you know, maps of this stuff that I'll be actually have a brand new nerdy map about, you know, the future of binge and how we're doing this, but really things are project based. And that that's how we keep it manageable. So we'll have a project, we'll have a something that we want to look at, say, you know, we have a surveillance team looking at surveillance issues. You know, what does that team end up needing? Oh, they need a data scientist. 
Let's go find a data scientist. We're going to make some infographics. We need to hook that team up with a designer. Let's get a designer on the phone. I mean, you know, we and we have this awesome network, and it, it's it's really cool. It's it's uh, you know, when the Phoenix went out of business, my as sad as I was about that actually happening, I had my biggest fear was that I'd never work in a newsroom. I'd never work collaboratively again. You know that that it was going to be me. I had this picture of me freelancing behind my desk. I'm almost getting choked up thinking about you know, and not working with other people. And and with binge. It's just the complete opposite. It's almost like the world is our newsroom, or the city at least. So what are some of the projects you've been able to do with Binge? One of the big ones we did early on was, uh, you know, we look at this in the traditional, alt, the, tradi- the traditional alternative media lens, which is that we cover things that aren't being covered by other people, or we cover things that are being covered by them, but differently. You know, in the first realm, we have a bunch of natural gas pipelines coming into Boston, through Boston right now or one coming through Boston, but several in the region. And, you know, I'm not making any accusations here. All newsrooms are diminished, but the Boston Globe in particular, the big newspaper here, has really decided that that's just, it's just not something that that's in their scope. They haven't really covered it. And and the same goes, you know, since they kind of lead things around here, the same goes for just local media in general. So we said our first big story was going to be about this pipeline by the company Spectra. And people uh, in the suburbs on the cusp of Boston were demonstrating, getting arrested and such. And, you know, that was our first big one. That was the first one we came out with. After that, we went into surveillance a little bit and we had a huge scoop that ended up getting covered by outlets across the country, which was that we uh, we caught the Boston Police Department lying about using automatic license plate readers Uh, for three years. They've lied. We also found exposed online nearly a million license plates that their contractor, Xerox, had left exposed tied to people's home addresses. Wow. So that was, a, that was our second one. We've done uh, an amazing piece on gentrification in a neighborhood called Alston, which is basically Harvard, the Harvard University, and everything they've done in this neighborhood, traditional working class and student neighborhood. And uh, you know that's an important story because Rachel Hawk, uh, the reporter who wrote it, was actually a reader who had written us a letter that this would be a great story. And it was about how a monument to a woman who had fought gentrification there 50 years ago was now being bulldozed in the new wave of gentrification. So it's this <laughs> unbelievable kind of turn of events. But Rachel, she's just talented and said, no, do you write it all? It, it took a long time, but this was an example. And that's one of the ones we had a community event for. And we brought this full circle. And, you know, that was really, you know, uh, half of the feed. We've done 15 features so far. We also did a, you know, uh, a series on immigration, and half of those features about were by first-time long-form writers. So you know, we're not going anywhere. But if we did, were to end this tomorrow, I'd be proud of that alone. You know, have you have you made much of a ripple in uh, in Boston? Yeah, I mean, we um, we also have four columns. So others are doing columns now. I think we didn't we didn't plan on doing columns initially. We've published about a hundred so far, altogether between the four. And they have a. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about the impact of some of our features in a second. But the columns keep our voice really out there on a regular basis. They're carried by some of our partners. We also have a partnership with Medium, and they've run there. But in, in some of the big debates going on in Boston, I'll, just one example is General Electric is moving their headquarters here. And you know, for those who are unaware, they're more or less the most deplorable company in America. <laughs> um, you know, you know uh, doing the opposite of paying taxes, and we could go pollution. We can go on and on, but 
Jason Premis, who writes one of our columns called Apparent Horizon, was the first and continues. He's now done, I think, nine installments about General Electric. These have fomented a protest movement of sorts. They have really pushed, in my opinion, a lot of the more mainstream media to actually look at some of the polluting that General Electric has done right here in Massachusetts. So in that regard, conversationally, absolutely. In a more concrete way, one of our other column teams that also does has done some features, Andrew Quimier and uh, Maya Schaefer, they have a column called Broken Records. It's all about, and you two are going to love this, it's all about public information and public <laughs> record reform. That's great. And it's unbelievable. And some of these have gone, you know, as viral as a story like that can go, but really with thousands of shares. <laughs> and so in one case, you know, they've done some, I don't want to sell any of their stuff short. It's been unbelievable. Uh, but in one case, one thing, they, they discover that a police department, and this isn't right in Boston, it's outside of Boston. It's actually farther uh, west in Massachusetts. But uh, discover that a police department had lost a bunch of evidence and okay. that the district attorney had covered it up. And really, basically, just totally, you know, it was the perfect example of the phenomenon, what I explained before, of, you know, that story never would have been written. And next thing you knew, it was covered by, you know, dozen plus news outlets day after day, getting on that district attorney and really showing the hypocrisy in the system there. And, and that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Our three biggest stories are about to drop and uh, one's related to Boston public schools. That's going to, it's tied to something nationally related. And I think that'll be uh, our big breakout moment in that regard. So, so all the stuff, it goes on the binge site. Do you share it out with partners? I mean, you kind of mentioned the, some of the columns right. are. Great question. So yeah, you know, nothing has just been binge, you know, I am also the editor of the weekly dig Boston and you know, most, a lot of our content, 75% of the content has gone out there, but as well as other places too. But uh, so the, a lot of the columns run there and most of the features run there and that we still, you know, they still print thousands on the streets of Boston, Cambridge, Somerville. So that's like a lot of, it's great for our physical distribution. El Planeta has run a bunch of our features in Spanish. Some of our awesome local outlets, Dorchester reporter is a great example of just a totally sustainable operation. They have, you know, reporters. Uh, they also have a Haitian, a Haitian reporter, a Haitian newspaper in, in the city. We bring these kind of features that they don't have the extra budget to produce. Which is, uh, which is nice. It's, an, it's a nice reciprocal, reciprocal uh, arrangement where you're getting yep. exposure for the stuff that you're doing. You're getting a bigger audience and they're getting a type of coverage that they just can't either afford or, or unable to do. Right. So also, I can't forget, we do publish all of our stuff on Medium. So we, uh, we have a, a relationship with Medium.com. We actually just went got to hang out with them in San Francisco, some people from Medium. And we're one of the first people, if you go to bingeonline.org, it, it actually is a Medium page. They really they let us uh, hook it up. It looks like a cool website now. And we're psyched about a partnership with them. And we also have a thing called Throwback Binge, which is going to be kind of connecting news from the past with news from the present. And that is going to be on medium first. That's going to be the first thing like that. And that is uh, where we're one of the first outlets that's doing monetization with medium. So that's going to be like a monthly sustainer. You could for $3, you could be a sustaining donor to binge. So, you know, we're experimenting across the board, but as far as content, we want it to be spread as, as wide and far as possible. And in the second half of 2016, Jason Premis, our network director is just all about syndication and also not just syndication, but, you know, you have we have like I said, we have partners 
if they, you know, maybe they need a deeply investigated column even, you know, they make that recommendation and that, oh, sure, definitely. That's something we'll get on. So, you know, distribution is, is huge for us. We distribute through a newspaper, Spare Change, our local uh, homeless newspaper and community newspapers galore. And I just don't want to forget one other thing about that is the one thing we've done like outside of Boston is we set up a pop-up newsroom during the uh, New Hampshire primaries. Oh, cool. With my uh, former uh, Dig Boston editor, Dan wait, wait, McCarthy. Wait, you're from Massachusetts. You went to, were you one of those people who uh, was voting when they shouldn't have been voting? <laughs> no, no, no. We, uh, but we just what we did was we ran a wire service of kind of like just more than 20, I think, oh, 30 pieces over a week. We ran a wire service. And they were syndicated by more than a dozen alt-weeklies and sites that are in, you know, Association of Alternative News Media and uh, in the media consortium, which we're also a part of. And, they, you know, it was great to see some of that work. So, like I said, some of our young writers, their first big clip, you know, running in the Orlando Weekly or in a, a weekly in California. It was, it was really exciting. That's pretty cool for a lot of different reasons. I mean, we, we talked, we've talked about this on, on the, the podcast, it seems, endl- endlessly about the digital revolution and, and, and then the downturn in the economy and the, the disappearing of ad revenue and, and what that created, the news environment it created in many communities where – you know, maybe you lost your daily or maybe you only had your daily and you lost your weekly or your alternative newspaper. And so suddenly there were gaps in news coverage where you used to be able to get, you know, have the state house covered, you know, have city hall covered your crime and your, you know, your schools and all that stuff. And now, as I said, there are these huge gaps and, you know, things happen and there's news that, that still needs to be reported and that people care about. And it's nice to see that you have something like this where you can sort of fit into those, some of those gaps and, and go after those stories that um, you, either people can't afford to uh, cover or that there's nobody there to cover. And, you know, and for us, it's also important to, you know, I teach, uh, I teach journalism, intro to journalism at Salem State University. I'm an adjunct professor. And uh, my, my students are awesome and they're really smart. And, you know, it's a state school, so they work. You know, they're really in the community and they, they know their communities. But you know what? They don't sit back and read the traditional newspaper every day. So, you know, we're really also working to get to that crowd, too. And, you know, that whether that's through social media, you know, and I, I can lob any number of cliches at you, but we're trying to some new stuff, too. We're, you ever been to a diner and you have, like, the diner menu in front yes. of you? We're doing, you know, some of our more evergreen stuff. I realize that diners will take those for free. And uh-huh. we can print them for uh, two cents each. So black and white diner menu that has a bunch of our news and links and, and headlines from our partner papers. I was meeting with an artist yesterday who... We're doing some stuff about gentrification and development, and we're going to be projecting some of those stories onto the buildings. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So people can actually <laughs> read them. You know, we're trying to get where, wherever people are. I'm not trying to be stubborn. You know, I do. I will say this, though. A lot of people still do read their print and community newspapers, and it's awesome to be there because, you know, I'm certainly not going to, you know, not bad mouthing. I don't want to single out any papers. I know a lot of people do this, but what you'll see even in a major pl- uh, city like Boston is these newspapers, which are otherwise credible and have done great work over the years, suddenly they need content. What are they running? They're running basically propaganda from the city sometimes, city press releases. And I'll tell you, in a place like Boston or any place, but, you know, things are happening very fast around here. You know, not really understanding something, not understanding development deals, that's dangerous. And having the city's voice is, as opposed to, you know, not even necessarily a critical, but just a repertorial voice in there is uh is not a good thing so in some cases you know and this is one thing we're we're we're, great we've been doing the past couple of weeks and moving forward just really going a lot of these community papers and 
offering them columns and offering them content and you know building those relationships from there at the very least it sounds like you're also working with and correct me if i'm wrong here but it sounds like you're working with some people who are readers first but maybe had not had not written before um had not ever thought of themselves as someone who would you know go running around town with their notebook asking questions um you mentioned that you're an adjunct professor for uh, your intro news writing class but how do you work with people who maybe have a great idea and you feel that they're the best person to tell that story you know is there some like general advice for them or do you work a little more closely or do you just sort of tell them you know go do what you feel is important ask the questions you want answered and then we'll go from there you know it's really been different in different cases i want to give a shout out to uh, you know haley hamilton and uh, emily hopkins who have been really doing a lot of that actually um emily is down working for the marshall project for the summer which is awesome down in new york i've had people who have help in every situation is different you know and personally I've been trying to work on not doing the things that edit always bothered me when editors did them <laughs> you know? and everybody's got a different skill set I have some reporters who are just unbelievable interviewers and some of their stuff turns into more oral history type of stuff there are people who are tremendous writers but are a little lazy right I always say it's kind of like a, you know in um, that movie what is it Armageddon where they, they teach the the drillers how to be astronauts instead of teaching astronauts how to be drillers. Yeah. I kind of like that. I feel like you can almost figure out like you can teach anyone like the mechanics of writing ultimately, especially with the voice dictation stuff. I tell people to just kind of, you know, read into their, you know, read into a Google doc and we'll edit it from there sometimes <laughs> to find people with the excitement to find people. I have this one team we're working. I don't even want to give it away. We're working on an environmental related, so food safety story. And it's like every time I say, how about this Freedom of Information Act request? They go, oh, yeah, we already filed that. <laughs> That's great. You know? So it's really it's that excitement level. I have this saying and my friends are getting sick of me saying, hearing me say, but I said there, there will be no such thing as armchair long form journalism. <laughs> you, it take, it's too much work. It it's too much of a pain. So what does that mean? That means two things. That means one, we do need to be paying people at least several hundred dollars, but preferably several thousand dollars to do these stories, right? Right. The second thing that means is that we need an apparatus to support them editorially. And, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, 12, 15 years, but people also who are, you know, I have a decent institutional memory. I've read hundreds, literally hundreds of books about Boston. And, you know, I'm one of those people who just walks the streets, but you know, people older than me also hopefully get in here. And also the technical stuff. We have fantastic copy editors, an awesome fact checker who I think is going to start uh, working with us on a, a more regular basis soon. I just think like, uh, you know, I've been there. You know, I really get it. And I know, trust me, I know the editorial process can be grueling and take months for these kinds of things. But, you know, when it's through, it's just it's something you could be proud of. And, and I think that to see some of these people, like whether they were people who studied journalism in college and then you know, thought there was no place in it for them if they weren't going to be full time or like you said, or if it's someone who really just wasn't thinking along those uh, terms and wanted to contribute something to their community and maybe a different way than planting a garden. We're happy to work with all these people. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, as more resources are put at our disposal to get more people who could help facilitate that. So is this a model that other newsrooms uh, or other journalists do you think that they can replicate? So, you know, I've been asked this, of course, you know, some of the uh, Bigger funders who have liked the idea have, 
have asked that, you know, and, and certainly we've had inquiries from places like Philadelphia, Chicago, and I always joke that it has to be a place that starts with a B, so it could be B-I-N, you know, B-I-N-J, uh, uh, binge. But of course this could be replicated, and we, we, we hope to be able to help people with that eventually. In the short term, I really recommend if other cities are as much like Boston as I assume they are, I really recommend people start to break those boundaries down. You know, I know that there's always over the years there are well-meaning people and consortiums of local media and groups, but I really encourage people to take that stuff to the next level and get over just bickering on bar stools. It's really about sharing stuff. It's really about if there are five other local papers and you have a cool column that maybe some of them want to run, it's about being able to say to them, hey, hey, everybody, hey, editors, that column is available on Tuesday at five o'clock at this URL. Anybody ever wants to grab it? you know, grab it. And that's all, that's what binge is at the core. You know, there's a company called BASF yeah. and they used to have this motto, like we don't make products, we make products better. Mm-hmm. That's a part of what we're doing, you know? So I really recommend if people ultimately want to do something like this, you know, it's perfect if you're just one person even sitting there because this really is a grassroots thing. But more importantly, it's about networking all these different places. So, you know, encourage like I always do that after you're covering some, if somebody doesn't have to go and file something, encourage them to go grab a cup of coffee. You know, I think the having to write eight stories a day for some local journalists and stuff like that is killing our sense of network. Whereas, you know, between technology and the fact that we need to work together, if we're going to save any of this, we really need to be collaborating a lot more. So a lot of that sounds like buzzword stuff. But if anybody comes to Boston, it's not as a threat. It's an invitation. I mean it. Come hang out with us. And I think you'll be blown away. I mean, Yesterday alone, I probably, not even in just regular work capacity, I probably saw like 25 journalists. I mean, it's just about that, you know, building that family. So that's my recommendation. Cool. Well, thanks for, for talking to us about about this, Chris. This is really kind of fascinating. I think uh, you give hope to people who, who want to cover this sort of, these different types of stories, these alternative stories, some of them, and, and sort of fill those gaps in, in the, the news landscape. I really appreciate your, it's not often you get to just go off for this long. So this is a great forum and uh, having me not only once, but twice, it's, it's really, uh, I appreciate it. Well, you keep doing this innovative stuff and, and we like talking about it. So thanks for, for coming on. Thanks, Amber. Thanks, Mike. Next time on It's All Journalism. Things like this have happened since people started speaking and writing. The concept of an anti-slap is a relatively recent creation that started about the 1980s when people realized it's not enough to have the First Amendment that gives you the the ability to ultimately win a case in court. We need a reason to procedurally accelerate the case and maybe give me the right to win my own damages if I've had to endure a frivolous lawsuit. So right now, just under 30 of the states and the District of Columbia, I think it's about 28 states and the District of Columbia, have state-level anti-SLAPP laws. In our next episode, we talk to Kevin Goldberg, legal counsel for both the American Society of News Editors and our podcast partners, the Association of Alternative News Media. We discuss the chilling effect that strategic lawsuits against public participation have on free speech. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. This week's podcast was produced by me, Michael O'Connell, Nicola Grisco, and Amber Healy. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>